Uh, Our next reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 15. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present, present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. For the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. The the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, that you may go well, uh, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children; instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If you're a slow Bible fiddler, that's a good place to leave your Bible open, as we. Uh, Look through this, there'll be an outline under talk two, it's called Leadership in the Family. The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The 20th century was an age of uh, revolutions, and some of the social revolutions were greater than the physical militaristic revolutions. One of them was exemplified in the International Year of the Family, which was 1994. Uh, For those of us who are, they used to do international years. I don't know whether I've heard any international years lately. Uh, They all fizzled out. Some of them actually did some good things. In the International Year of the Disabled, we invented the ways of having footpaths that could uh, be used by people with wheelchairs and things like that. Some good things came out of them, but most of them, they fizzled into nothing. And one of the worst ones was the International Year of the Family. We who are family people tend to think this was going to be a great year. But in actual fact, nothing came out for the good of families that I know. Mainly what happened the whole time was a big discussion is what is a family? 
And actually, the whole concept of family life came under such scrutiny that at the end of the International Year of the Family, we didn't have families anymore. We just had people, just individuals, as the individualism of the Western civilization ran rampant and the concept of being in family relationships with people was sidelined as of no significance or importance. In fact, if anything, it was a tyranny. And the kind of tyranny that our ex-Prime Minister, uh, Julia Gillard, this is not a political statement, this is a more personal statement, the kind of tyranny of feminism that she believed in, whereby families and marriage in particular was a slavery, and the faster we got rid of marriage, the better, which is why previously she didn't support gay marriage because she didn't believe in marriage. She thought marriage was a tyranny, a slavery. It had to be got rid of. And so why would you want homosexuals to enter into that kind of slavery that we're trying to liberate women from? I see that uh, politically she's now changed her mind on gay marriage, but she hasn't changed her mind on marriage. She doesn't believe in it. But if you're going to have it, well, you may as well have the gays may as well have it, is the change of mind I gather she's now made. But you see, in the 1990s, feminism was at its height, and as a consequence of it, you see this kind of thing. Now, on our screen, we can put up the, the change that shows you what actually happened, that there was a change. You see, every moralist says things are getting worse, things are getting worse, things are getting worse. I'm a Christian, so I'm not a moralist. I don't think things are getting worse. They've been as bad as they ever were. <laughs> but there are shifts in history, and you do have to be able to see it in a sense, quantitatively, to know that it has happened. Uh, I read a book by... Uh, the graph will come clear in a minute. I read a book by uh, a, a, an American Jewish historian, a very famous one called Gertrude Himmelfarb. I, I read it partly because it's such a great name, isn't it? You know, I mean, you had a name like that, you'd want to become famous to, to flaunt it, wouldn't you? Gertrude Himmelfarb. And she's written some very interesting books, and she's the kind of academic we don't have in Australia... That is a conservative. There are very few of them in Australia, but in America there's lots of them. And they argue some interesting points. And I, I just like it because it's different. And so Gertrude pointed out that from 1800 through to 2000, that's 200 years, the average rate of children born outside of marriage, ex-nuptial ex births, went from 5 to 8% for all that period of time, until the 1960s. And then in the 1960s, it rose to 35%. Now, she has graphs of that kind of thing. So I thought, well, is this true in Australia? In Australia, I couldn't find easily the records. I'm, uh, you know, there are better things to do in my life than find the obvious. But I found this just on the uh, you know three clicks down through Mr Google into the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and there it is. It only goes back to 1910. But from 1910 to 1970, the number of children born outside of marriage never got up to 10%, which is the, what she said. In England, right back to 1800, it was exactly the same. Four or 5% of children have been born outside of marriage. But since 1960 and the 60s revolution, it has climbed in Australia to 35%. That is a social change. That is a measurable, undeniable social change. And you can say to me, but, but Philip, you know, that's because people are now living in de facto relationships rather than in legal relationships. And I'm saying, yes, that's a social change. These are not necessarily children with single mothers. They could be children with mother and father, but mother and father aren't married. 
And that has never been the case. For 200 years, 170 years, that was not the case. But it is now the case in Australia that a third of children are raised outside of legal marriage. And indeed, part of the big conundrum which which uh, Miss Gillard actually shows up to, Julia Gillard, did I call her Jermaine Greer? Julia Gillard, the same initials, it gets confusing for me. The, uh, if Jermaine Greer is the Prime Minister of Australia, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, but the same kind of uh, issue that Julia Gillard raises is one of the fundamental issues of the problem of the gay marriage campaign. That is, why do the feminists hate marriage and the homosexuals love it. What gives? You've got one group who are fighting to destroy it and you've got another group who are insisting that they be included in it. One group values it, the other group despises it. And we're supposed to know what society wants. You see, marriage is now in terrible confusion. Family life is in confusion in our society. The problems and the changes that have come about are massive. Uh, that's just the end point. That's just something that's measurable. It's not the most significant factor in it. Uh, the problems became clear back in the 1970s with the Family Law Act. You see, marriage in common law had meant the union of a man and woman to the exclusion of all others voluntary entered into for life. That was codified in 2004 under John Howard. But he was just codifying what the common law actually had always meant by marriage. But in 1975, we brought in the Family Law Act, which really was the divorce law. But we don't call it the divorce law because that's anti-family, so we just call it the, they're the family courts. But you know what happens in the family courts? Families are broken up. It's a lovely piece of spin doctoring, isn't it? Why don't we call divorce courts what they are? Divorce courts, rather than pretending they're actually pro-family. This codifying, though, didn't make sense of the divorce courts. Because you enter into a contract, into a union, for life. But actually the union you enter into is not for life. So when I go to a wedding, I promise, for better, for worse, for richer and for um, sickness and health, until death do us part. But the law actually does not mean that. The words I say and what I meant when I said them meant that, but that's not actually what the law means. At this point, you see, the social engineering of politicians and lawyers has overwhelmed rationality, sense and the use of language. Because what the law actually means is, I will stay with you and will not enter into a formal legal contract with another woman until I have left you for more than 12 months. That's actually what the law means. The one thing that I'm not allowed to do is to have two women in that legal union. Uh, I can have another woman or... 10 or 15 or 20 outside the legal union, that, that's not going to break the legal union because there's no fault in divorce. So you can have as much adultery as you like. In fact, you can even run a website on it if you want to. But what does stop me is I can't have two in this legal framework until I've left one for 12 months. Once I've left her for 12 months, 
then I just send in the paperwork. She can't stop it because there's no fault divorce. There's no way you can stop a divorce now. And so then I am free to enter into this legal contract with somebody else, which says, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health, until death us do part, even though I'm going to part with you in 12 months' time because I want to upgrade and move on to a new model like I buy new cars. And so we now have a, a marriage system which in certain terms means one thing, but in reality means something completely different. Can you think of another contract in our legal system where the words you sign, the contract you make, bears so little relationship to the reality that you're involved in? Can you imagine buying a house? Can you even buy a car with such word play? It's a complete nonsense and it has been since 1970s. Now there's our problem. Gay marriage, that's just the end point of a problem that has been building up for a hundred years. It's just the, the last of the many issues whereby family life has been undermined in our society. So that faithfulness is the essence of marriage in the Bible. But in our Western world, faithfulness has been replaced by love, which is not the essence of marriage in the Bible. And now, of course, love has been replaced by sex, which again is not the essence. And so ultimately, marriage is replaced by Ashley Madison. Life is short, have an affair. That's where it ends up. And so the role of men and women inside marriage or between each other outside of marriage has undergone a radical change. But if you look at these radical changes, they're the symptoms, not the disease. They're not the underlying issue that has given rise to these symptoms. But you can't have the rise of feminism without having at the same time the decline of masculinism. And that might be a good, right thing. Maybe men had too much power and women didn't have enough power. And so you take some of the power from men and give it to the women. But as a Christian, you think, who wants power? We're not in the game of power. We're in the game of giving our life as a ransom for many. We're in a different ball game. So we don't understand the power transactions that are taking place because... We don't think in the same categories of thought about power because we're sinful Christian men, we do. But as true Christian men, we shouldn't. So that's part of our confusion, and our confusion doesn't help. You see, notice the change in language. So much of it is caught up in language. Spin doctors are alive and well. Notice how you don't call your wife a wife anymore, she's your partner. You don't call a husband a husband anymore, he's a partner. We just have partners. I have partners in tennis, I have partners in golf, I have partners in business, but at home she's my wife and I'm her husband. We're not partners. That's, a, that, that's, that's not our relationship. We've got a different relationship than being partners. When you hear yourself say partners, apologise and immediately repent and go back to husband and wife. I mean, if you like, we can generalise it and say, I've got a spouse, but I haven't got a partner. I've got a wife, and she has a husband. 
And those two are different because, you see, the shift is to treat individuals as individuals rather than families and societies as families and societies. And so we're not to treat the family unit as the basis of society. It is the individual that is now the basis of society, which is a fundamental rejection of God, who is three persons in one and who has created us in his image. It's a fundamental rejection of how God has created us, male and female he created us. It's a fundamental rejection of the creation of woman for the man. It's a fundamental rejection of God that has given rise to this whole individualism now constituted in law more and more and seeing the family as an accident of no particular importance. And so unisex is really the problem we have. To treat men and women as the same is to treat them unjustly and unfairly. It's like treating a blind person and a sighted person as the same. They're not the same, and we should care for those who are blind to provide extras for them. But you don't... See, all people are created equal is a nonsense. There's not a man in this room who's as handsome as me. (laughs) We're not created equal. You know, you're doing the best you can. Good on you. We're not creative. Some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us have got big brains, some have got little brains, some have got lots of muscles, some haven't got any muscles. We're not created equal like that. In what sense is our equality then when we talk of equality? It's not sameness. Sameness is not the same as equality. And interchangeability is not the result of equality. There is an equality before the law, but what that means is a slightly different thing than that we are equal. Indeed, treating your children unequally is an important way of treating them justly and fairly. If you give to each of your children exactly the same things, you're most likely treating them unfairly because your children are different, aren't they? It's one of the characteristics of your your children, unless you live in a very strange family, every child I know from the womb seems to come out with a different personality, with different requirements, with different needs, and at different phases of their life require different things. The one at six needs to go to bed at a different time, the one who is nine. And in fact, it's not just that, it's even personality. One of my children needed 12 hours sleep every night. A wonderful thing. Another one, we could never get to sleep. You know, come about 11 o'clock at night, they'd come into the room as we went to bed in order to have deep and meaningful conversations. My wife would say, well, you don't mind if we just hear kind of vertical with my eyes shut while you talk to me, dear, do you? Didn't seem to affect her in the slightest. She just kept on talking. But the other one was well and truly often snoring, not didn't snore, well and often pushing up the Zs long before that. To treat those two children the same was to treat them unjustly and unfairly. Because they're not the same. So we have a real problem here in what we're talking about in terms of language. See, there's a very interesting book I read. Uh, I was interested in it, but much so just the kind of strange mind I have. But by uh, an academic, two academics in England, Simon Zretter. I'll spell it for you because you won't believe it. S-Z-R-E-T-E-R. Zretter. Simon Zretter and Kate Fisher. I won't spell that for you. The book's title is Sex Before the Sexual Revolution. 
Now, that's an important part. You see, down in the flat part of the graph, before all that takeoff, what was it like? What were our parents doing sexually? What was it? What differences were there back then as there are today? Uh, it's an interesting book because what they did was they did oral history. They talked to really old people in the 1990s, people who were born at the beginning of the century, about their sexual life. They had long, intimate discussions with these old people about their marriages and their sex and what they found out, that how they lived and what they did and what they didn't do. And I like the report because it wrote up things that were contrary to the expectations of the two researchers. They had a view of what sex life would be like before the sexual revolution, and it wasn't like that at all. It was quite different. For them, back in the early part of the 20th century, these are English people from all kinds of social strata of society. It's oral history, not statistical history, so you can't necessarily generalise it to everybody. But as I read it, it was my parents. My mum and dad were born in the first decade of the, of the 20th century. Uh, and they married, what, 1935 or something or other like that. It was, it was them. It was my uncles and my aunts and that generation. As I knew them, just the book rang true all the way through. And as it records it, you see, these people were family people first and foremost. Why did you get married? Well, because I became a man. Well, then why did you get married? Well, I, you know, that's what you do. I, I need to leave home. I had a job. I shouldn't depend on my parents anymore. I've got to set up my own home. If I'm going to set up my own home, I need to find a woman, get married, have kids. Well, why did you do that? Well, that's what men do. Why did you get married? Well, because he asked me to. I wanted to have children, and so this was the man to marry. What did you like about him? Well, he had a good, steady job. Uh, what did you like about her? Well, she made her own clothes. <laughs> it was totally functional. It was just, you know, you're of age. Well, I knew his family. I knew her family. Yeah, we lived around the corner from each other. You know, our families knew each other. They used to play bridge with each other. and So we got married. And it was in all kinds of strata of the classes and the society. Marriage was about having families. Marriage is about setting up your own home. Marriage was, was children. They then said, well, what about love? And these old people really risked great damage and death because they fell about laughing. Always got to be danger when you're old, falling around. You break the pelvis, that's it. You know. So, anyway, they fell about laughing at the idea of love and they all had the same view. Oh, that was invented by Hollywood just before the war and in the war. I said, but did you love each other? Well, we grew to love each other. But we didn't marry for love. That was silly. And they really thought the whole Hollywood idea of two people falling in love and then going off into the, you know, into the, the end of the movie all happily, they just thought it was stupid. Because that's not what marriage is about. That's not what family is about. And so it wasn't about love to them. It was about having kids. That's why you wanted a family, so you got married, so you had kids. And then you fell in. To have that, you have sex. They didn't bother finding out about sex before they got married. What's the point? We're not going to have it. Why would I need to know about that? And once I got married, well, then I needed to find out about it. I found out about it. But I, it's like learning to drive a car before you've actually got a car. What's the point? You know, so they didn't find out about these things. But it didn't worry them. They had very happy sexual lives, which shocked the researchers, because unless you know everything there is to know about sex, you couldn't possibly enjoy it. 
you know, but here are people who had a very happy life, happy monogamous life. And, but it was completely different. And so family turned into marriage under romance and then, of course, romance couldn't hold families together. And so sex, but sex doesn't hold them together and you don't need to actually be committed to the other person to have sex anyway, do you? And so our society has moved from, in the 20th century, into the 21st century, from family thoughts, to marriage, to romance, to sex, to hookups. That's what's happened in a hundred years in our social history on sexuality. Our families are in crisis. Our community's in crisis. Divorce has spread like a cancer all through our society and divorce breeds divorce. The children of divorce generally do not trust marriage and they find it really hard to get married. And so more and more people are living as single people. It's an increasing phenomenon in our society and going to increase in our society under the current regime. There's nothing wrong with being alone, but there's something dreadful about loneliness. And the two things do get connected. Ultimately, Australians, you see, we need migration because we're not reproducing. And a culture that doesn't reproduce is a culture that's lost confidence in itself. Not against migration. Nothing I've said at the moment has any party political implications. I'm not talking about that. I'm not against immigration. We're a migrant nation. Of course we are. But we need migrants because we no longer have children. Child raising itself has become into great difficulty. When the men came back from the Second World War, all they wanted to do was have a family, have children, like their parents, you see. And they became totally focused on their family and they rebuilt society. That generation were the, the, the builders of our society. They worked really hard, but they were built it for their families. That's what they built it for their kids. And unfortunately, they made their kids their gods. No one, group of people are more unpleasant to know than the baby boomers. Hello out there. <laughs> Raised by people who thought that their children were the meaning and purpose of life and existence and actually taught their children that they were. This is why they sound unpleasant. We, we, we got onto Dr. Spock, child-centred, child-raising. <laughs> not family-centred, not God-centred, not society-centred, child-centred. Can't help but teach children to be selfish if you make them the centre. And so we then did that other dreadful thing with the divorce laws, taught their children that they didn't matter because we made decisions for ourselves rather than for the benefit of our children. It was really bad. It has been bad. It's been bad for a long time. Christians are very insecure about it because we're surrounded by divorce, we're surrounded by the difficulties of children, we're surrounded by the problems of a society moving away from Christianity, and so we become insecure. And the insecurity is reflected in the fact that we keep on producing more and more books on how to raise your children. 
Can I encourage you, do not read them. Uh, my brother has a policy of only one a year. He said he's, he, his soul can't survive any more guilt than that. <laughs> That's the limit. And nearly all the books on how to raise children are very guilt-producing. And by and large, uh, uh, non-Christian thinking glossed with Bible verses. By and large, there are some better ones than that, but they really aren't going to help you all that much, my friends. You see, you learn to raise children by being raised as a child yourself and remembering what mum and dad did and what your grandparents did. The best wisdom used to come from grandma's kitchen table. That, that We didn't need counsellors in days gone by because we had grandmas, but if you don't have grandmas, you might need a counsellor. That, that's the shift that has happened in our society. And so we don't know what to do, so we get a book on the subject. Or we don't do that anymore. We Google the subject now. You know, Google will tell us what we should do with our children. I'll tell you, there is a book that's worth reading, and if you care to write it down, I'll uh, give it to you. I'll even uh, give you the author of it so that you get it straight. There is one really, really fantastic book on child raising. It's written a man by a man called Solomon, and it's called the Book of Proverbs. It actually tells you how to raise your children, because that's what it's about. So here we are reading all this psychobabble out of America with a Christianized gloss while ignoring what the Bible says about how to do it. Read Proverbs. That's where it's at. So we come to Ephesians 5 with all this background. Let's look at the context of it first up. So the context is being spirit-filled. Let your fullness be that of the spirit. It's contrary to the world. The world, you see, is two things. Chapter 5, I'm looking at around about verse 17. The world is foolish and the world is drunk. You will not gain wisdom from alcoholic spirits. That is not the purpose for it. It's the anaesthetist, uh, anaesthetic, to help you cope with pain, which is why it doesn't solve anything. It just drops you out of your brains. But what you do is you gain wisdom from God and from God's word. And by the Spirit of God, you will know how to live. You then have five participles. Now, because some of you are in Albury and not from Wodonga, uh, that means you've been raised under the New South Wales Department of Education. I don't know what happens in Victoria, but I know New South Wales Department of Education, and therefore I know you don't know what the meaning of the word participle is. A participle is a little word ending in ing or in the past tense ending in ed and it's there so as to help the verb and the sentence. It works as an adjective. It's a verbal adjective. Now, you don't know what a verbal adjective is. Well, a verb is a doing word or a being word. Go back, well, I'd say go back to school, but there's no point, not in our schools. They don't teach you grammar anymore. But the ing words are really important words because they help the main verb, the main word. The main thing is being filled with the Spirit. But what will it look like? Well, there are five little participles there to help you know what it looks like. You'll be addressing in verse 19. You'll be singing and making melody in verses 19, you'll be giving thanks in verse 20, and you'll be submitting in verse 21. So hopeless is modern English and grammar that those of you who got the NIV don't have them as ING words. You have speaking, but then you have sing and make, and then you, you get giving, but then you have a new sentence, new paragraph, new heading, submit, as if a whole new subject has started, when in actual fact it's all one sentence. 
A sentence is a basic... <laughs> so, what is it that being filled with the Spirit will look like? That's what it will look like. The people who are filled with the Spirit will be speaking to one another, but will be speaking to one another and the things that matter, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And we will sing and make melody in our hearts because rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say to you, rejoice. So in your heart to the Lord, you'll always be thinking of praising God. In fact, you'll always be giving thanks to God. At that point, you're completely different to the Australians. Our characteristic is to whinge and complain. That's our Australian culture. Giving thanks, that's not our culture. You know, we've, we keep adopting things from America. Uh, which are silly and stupid, like Halloween. I know it's an old English thing, but we're adopting it from America because of American television, and it's really stupid. Uh, I cannot think of a good thing about Halloween. It's one of the most dumb, stupid ideas that have ever been invented, and to adopt it into Australia is really silly because we don't need to. Why don't we adopt the good thing the Americans have got? Thanksgiving. Now, that's a holiday worth having, isn't it? Because... We can't in Australia because we've got no one to thank. But the people who invented it, they believed in God. And so they thanked God for their survival of the first few years as Pilgrim Fathers and invented the annual Thanksgiving. That's worth having. Whereas we, we whinge, we complain all the time. See, how does an Australian wine and dine his girl? Well, he takes her out and he gives her a meat pie and tells his problems. That's how he wines and dines his girl. That's a New Zealand joke, that one. I got it from a Kiwis who also say, you know, what do you call an Australian in a suit? The defendant. And there's a whole string of those ones from New Zealand, you know. What do you call Australian culture? A contradiction in terms. Um, so we should be adopting Thanksgiving. That's the Christian thing. We've always got things to thank God for. And rather than be complainers, we should be the thanksgivers, which will stand us out as stark different to other people, and submitting. But notice who we submit to, one another. Submitting to one another out of our fear, out of our reverence, out of our respect to Christ. I submit to Christ, and therefore I submit to the people Christ places over me, whoever they may be. Now, submitting is a completely dirty word in Australia today. It's made even dirtier by things like books like the Fifty Shades of Grey and the whole pornography industry. Uh, our brothers, those of us who are caught by pornography, we're the victims rather than the criminals. It's the producers of it who are the criminals, aren't they? And you've got to feel sorry for the victims and help the victims rather than castigate the victims and make them feel even guiltier still. But pornography sees submission and dominance as a key part of sexuality and teaches young boys, because boys at the age of 11 are now watching pornography, teaches young boys that women are there to dominate. Uh, how the feminists can be so pro-pornography and so anti-Christian, it boggles the mind because it's all about enslaving women. And The Fifty Shades of Grey, which is a book that most of you haven't read because you're males, uh, it's, it's about dominance and submission from, the, from a woman's point of view and accepts that as a sexuality. It's an appalling thing. At least I understand from the reviews. I haven't read it. But submitting to one another is actually the Christian way of living. And indeed, it's the everyday 
way of living. It's the word and phenomenon that happens all the time in our society and nobody even notices because our society functions well. The opposite of submitting is 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 not the uh, is, sorry. I won't go for the opposite of submitting. It's accepting the authority and responding appropriately. You play cricket. There's a captain in the team. Your cricket team is not going to win if every time there's a field placement, we're all going to have a discussion and disagree as to where we're going to stand. You know, I mean, the captain says I've got to stand a silly bit on, but I like long on. You know, I can sign more autographs down by the fence there. So I'm going to go down there even though he wants me in there. I mean, you can't play like that. There's a captain in the team. You submit to the captain in the team. But, you know, the captain in the team might actually be a citizen that I, as a policeman, order around. That's because he's the captain of the cricket team. doesn't mean that he now is the captain of everything of my life. And so I submit to policemen. I hope you submit to policemen. I go to walk across the road, the policeman puts his hand up, and I say, OK, well, I won't walk across the road. The policeman has told me not to. I submit to him. I submit to the teacher in the class. I submit to the musicians. When we play the music and we sing the music, we're all submitting. We're submitting to the composer because we play in the key and the tempo and the tune that he says. I mean, what happens if the pianist says, well, I don't like that tune, I'm going to play my own tune. You know, and the drummer says, yeah, but I prefer a different, kind of more complicated rhythm. So he's playing one rhythm, he's playing a different tune. Well, we know what the guitarists are like already. And so <laughs> we don't get music, we get cacophony. The only way in which we can get music is all of them submitting to the music as composed by the... It's all submitting to what is happening, and we submit to it. You know, this group over here says, don't like that song, going to sing a different one. This group over here says, don't like that key, going to sing a different key. That group over there, they can't sing in key anyway. <laughs> so here we... That's not music. Music requires submission. We do it all the time. We do it intentionally, purposely, and it's the only way for society to function. You can't function with everybody being the boss. It's just the normality. The Americans are describing it, uh, a Jewish-American Harvard University man called Professor Putman, P-U-T-M-A-N. He describes it in terms of social capital. And there's more and more discussion on social capital. Uh, because I've said negative things about Labor politicians, I'll say a positive one now. There's a man called Andrew Lee, who's the member for Canberra, I think he is, uh, who's a, a student of Professor Lee, uh, of Professor Putman, uh, and he has written uh, a book on on uh, our society falling apart. Can't remember the name of the book now. Disconnections, it is. Um, he's an economist, was a professor at ANU University uh, in economics. And again, it's about social capital. Our economy works because society works. Our business works because society works. Our legal system works because society works. Our government works because society works. Our society doesn't work because of these things. They work because society works. Once society falls apart, government can't control it. Once society falls apart, economics, business principles, they all, everything falls apart. Social capital is what holds our society and all its different functionings together. Social capital involves submission. I put myself out for you, you put yourself out for me. When you're the teacher in the class, I'll listen to you. When you're the policeman on the street, when I'm the policeman on the street, you listen to me. 
We submit to one another. When I come to the red light, I submit to the red light. My South African friends call it a robot. I like that. I submit to the robot. But I'm actually submitting to your right to go through the green light. We, society does not function without submission. It can only function with submission. It's not a dirty word. Because the pornographers are making it a dirty word, we can't give it up. Because there's no alternative English word that I've come across. It is the word that describes how society functions. But our society functions on submission by social convention. Well, social convention's breaking down. By power. Well, that makes submission very dangerous. By money. By guns. By muscle. That makes society terrible tyranny. The Christian submits by God's appointment. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, why do you submit to the policeman? Because he's got a gun? Or a taser? Because he can lock you up in jail? That's when society has broken down, isn't it? I submit to the policeman because he is the government's appointee. And I submit to the government because the government is God's appointee. Then it has nothing to do with whether he's got a gun or a prison. It's got to do with the authority that is rightful, that I submit to. We submit on a completely different basis. And we also exercise authority on a completely different basis. That is the basis of loving service for the benefit of the other person. That's a completely different basis. Hey, I, was, I was horrified the other day. I haven't seen anybody comment on this. There's a, a deputy mayor up in Sydney in one of the suburbs who's had a, a wedding that has caused chaos in the suburb. You've seen this man, and he's got a video of his, his love life, which is quite nonsense. He met his, his beloved at the University of Sydney when she didn't go to university and he went to the University of Technology. But it's there on the video in Sydney University. Uh, and amongst other things, if you watch the little video that describes who he is and what he is in the most glorifying terms, he, has a, he pulls out a gun, a pistol, and he says, I'm the man who, no one, who will not uh, have anything stand in his way. Bang, bang. I was horrified. But so far I've seen no comment in the media about this. They've said all kinds of nasty things about him. But which political leader, which civil leader of our community stands firing pistols saying nothing's going to stand in my way? You, you, you accept the authority of a person because they're rightfully elected and we submit to the majority rule. That, that's what we submit to. And I'm accepting that because that is the nature of God's appointment of government in Australia. And so I don't like these politicians, but that's all right. They've been elected, they make the rule, I'll submit to the rule. So it's a different way of thinking. And I'm going to submit because they've got the guns. That's tyranny. That's a different thing. And an individual? I find it a very strange. Very strange business. So, as a spirit-filled person, you will look to submit to those in authority over you. 
He then applies it into marriage with wives to husbands. Notice it's not to all men, it's to her husband. But notice that gives men responsibility, not privilege, not status, not importance, but responsibility for his wife. The world will assume it means we have power, and we have power, we have status. But that's the world's assumption of the nature of submission, which is completely wrong. Because their submission, they only submit to the powerful. We submit to anybody. So what are husbands to do? Well, we have then laid out here this wonderful passage about love. That is, while love is not the essence of marriage, faithfulness is, love is the responsibility of those in authority. Love is the responsibility of the leader of the household. Love is the responsibility of the husband. But the love that we're talking of has got nothing to do with sex and romance. The love we're talking of is the love of self-sacrifice in the name of Jesus, laying down his life not for the lovely, but for the unlovely. Laying down his life for us while we were still enemies. He laid down his life for us. That is, you don't wait for your wife to repent of all her silly ways and come to agree with you and then you... No, no. The husband takes initiative in bringing about the reconciliation. While she is still guilty, he will die for her. I may add, brothers, I don't know the day she'll be guilty compared to you, (laughs) but just theoretically, if you do come across a day when your wife is in the wrong, (laughs) just if it happens sometime, you don't have to wait for her to be in the right to lay your life down for her. Because that's not what Christ did. While we were still wrong, he laid down his life for us. That's the character of the husband's love. Because he is to present his wife pure and spotless. That is, on the last day, I take it that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be saying to me, Philip, where's Helen? What have you done to her? What have you done for her? I'm requiring of you your love for her. And I've got to give answer to the Lord Jesus for every unkind word, every thoughtless act, every time of my self-centeredness I have failed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. You see how the whole idea of domestic violence is complete nonsense within Christianity? I mean, the it's got nothing, nothing could be further from the truth of what a loving husband will be involved in. Now, brothers, if any of you have got problems with anger management, you won't be the first bloke. Anger is one of the things that goes with testosterone. If you're having trouble in managing it, put your hand up and ask for help. Not now. Go and see your pastor. Say, I'm having anger management problems. Can you help me? Because, frankly, it's not a very difficult thing to help. Amongst all the problems that we have psychologically, it's one of the easier ones to actually make a difference. And because if you have anger management problems and you don't deal with it, in your anger you can do terrible damage. Terrible, terrible damage. I mean, the damage that you would never want to do to your wife, to your children, to yourself, to your life, to others. You know, anger out of control is really, really bad. And it is manageable. And you can get help. 
So just go and see your pastor and say, you know, I'm having anger management problems, can you help me? Because it's terrible to wake up after the event and say, well, I just lost my temper. Brothers, that cuts no ice. You should never have lost your temper in the first place. You should have learned how to manage your anger in the first place. So get it fixed. Don't, don't, don't fiddle with that one. That's too dangerous, that one. We're to love our wives. You see, the wife, you're the pastor of the wife. You're her shepherd. In 1 Corinthians 14, if she has any questions in church, who should she ask? She should ask her husband at home. You are responsible for her and for pastoring and caring for her soul because you have to present her before God, pure and spotless, on the last day. That is the joy of being a husband. And so you care for her as if you're caring for your own body because the two have become one. You are one flesh with her. And no one actually ignores his own flesh. Every man looks after his own flesh. And so you should be caring for her. You'll notice you are never called upon to subjugate your wife. She is called upon to be submissive. That's her responsibility. You're called upon to love her. That's your responsibility. Your responsibility is not to subjugate her. That's not your responsibility ever. You also so love her that she rejoices and enjoys in submitting to your leadership. You're never to be the man of violence. Malachi chapter 2 tells us that divorce is violence and God hates the violence of divorce. Walking away from your wife and her needs and her cares is never a right action. It's, it's a violence that you should not do in marriage. In fact, there's another verse that, keep your finger in Ephesians, we'll just clip across too quickly, 1 Peter 3, that I think is a really important verse for men. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The equality is in salvation, the heirs with you of the grace of life. It doesn't use the word equality. But the difference is also there in this lifetime, that is, they are the weaker vessel. We're both vessels, but they are the weaker vessel. That refers to our bodies. And therefore you've got to live in an understanding way. The, the, the language there is on the basis of knowledge you've got to live. You've got a responsibility to understand your, your wife's body and her weakness. And the weakness that is there by the Greek word that is used there means understanding the, the, the frailty, the, uh, the vulnerability that comes from uh, her reproductive system. See, pain in childbirth is not just pain in the labour ward. Pain in childbirth is monthly menstrual cycle. Pain in childbirth is miscarriages. Pain in childbirth... We, we don't have androcology departments, but we have gynaecology departments. Doctors don't see men from 18 to 40. Then when they do see them, they say, you've eaten too much. But we do see women from 18 to 40 all the time because of the whole process of birthing and of child and of having children. They have got much greater weakness than us, and therefore we need to understand them. I've encouraged men uh, to read books on it. There's a very simple book called Every Woman, written by a non-Christian professor, Llewellyn Jones. 
on gynecology, just a basic textbook on gynecology, to understand what your wife is going through as a woman because of her reproductive system. Because it is, it does make them vulnerable. It does make them the weaker vessel. And if you're going to be responsible for her, you need to understand what her, her needs are. That is the character of the Christian husband, laying his life down for her. We then see the children, which is a much simpler one. The children are to obey their children, their parents. That is not as, back to Ephesians I am, not as offspring, adult children, but children as children. And fathers mustn't provoke them to anger. You provoke someone to anger by frustrating them. Frustration leads to anger. And so constant criticism and irrational discipline will frustrate your children to anger. But there's a positive that's there. You bring them up in the fear and nurture of the Lord, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For God is the Father from whom all this is derived. That is, the Christian man must provide and protect. 1 Timothy 5.8 If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Our task is to provide for our families. And that means knowing how to give to our children. Remember Jesus saying, if you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much your Father in heaven will give good, good gifts. That is, giving good gifts to your children, providing for your children is the normality. And one of the groups of people who are most vulnerable in the world are widows. That's why pure religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their distress. Because the wife has a husband to provide for them, but the widow does not. In Jesus, you see the perfect husband and the perfect son. The perfect child, he submitted to his parents. Remember Luke chapter 2, verse 51. And he went down with them, that's Joseph and Mary, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. To submit to someone does not mean that you are less than them, that you are unequal to them. The Lord of glory submitted to his human mother and father. That's an astonishing thing to understand, isn't it? What's meant by submission. But he also submitted to his father. For in gaining his bride, the church, he had to do it his father's way. And nowhere do you see it more clearly, the love of the husband, than in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he begged that he not die, that the cup be taken from him. And yet he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There is submission. And it's by his submission we're saved. You can't be anti-submission and Christian. Submission lies at the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He submitted to his earthly parents. He submitted to his heavenly father. And by that submission, his love saved us, sinners as we are. We must be people of submission under God's appointment. And if we are in authority over anybody, our authority is to exercise responsibility in providing for them, in protecting them, in doing all that can be done, in laying down our lives for them and for their benefits. 
And nowhere do you see it more pointedly than in the family. And no one has greater responsibility in the family than the husband and the father. That's, that's our big responsibility, man. That's where it's got to be done. And it's not easy. It's not easy to stand up to a four-year-old in their tantrums. It's not easy to stand up to a teenager who wants to go off the rails. It's not easy. It takes courage, brothers. Courage and wisdom and self-sacrificial love to be a husband and to be a parent, a father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the Father from whom all fatherhood is named, that we see in you the true Father. We thank you, Father, that we can see in your Son the true Son. We thank you that we can see in our brother, the Lord Jesus, our, the true husband. And we pray, Father, that we who have benefited by your grace and his grace and love, we who have benefited this salvation, that we would now take up our responsibilities, that we would be the men that you would have us to be, prayerful, holy, living by your word, as we fight the good fight of the faith, fleeing the materialism of this world, pursuing holiness and righteousness, but living in right relationships, especially in our families honouring our parents by the ways in which we live, loving our wives as Christ loved the church, laying down our lives to present her to you, pure and spotless and holy, enriching her life at every point, understanding the vulnerability she's going through, accommodating for her in every way we can, and caring for our children, bringing them up not in self-centeredness, but in the fear and instructions of the Lord. That we would not provoke them to anger, Heavenly Father. Help us when we're irritable, when we're irritated by them. Help us when we're tired and when we're frustrated by them. Help us, Father, to be the models of fatherhood that you have been for us. That they might rise up and bless us because we are like you. We do pray, Father, for your help in the struggles of faith that we have in this life as we try and live to your praise and glory. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.